This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, Episode 266, The Federal Reserve versus Your Fractal Reserve. Traditional financial planning is no longer working. And in the new normal economy, your host, certified financial planner Mark Willis, invites you to join us as we engage the new and improved steps for establishing financial sanity. Be curious, be stable, be sane. This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode. The world is awash in turbulence and volatility to a level not seen in many years. Now, still, many Americans are spending their lives working harder and dreaming of that day where they can finally retire. The average age of retirement for Americans is 66 years old, according to a Gallup poll, which is up from age 60 in the 1990s. So if you can believe it, age 60 was the average. There are now over 48 million Americans over age 65 with an average income now of only $38,500, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, and an average net worth of only $170,000. How far do you think that will last into a longer and longer retirement as people are living longer and longer? How long will that money last as more and more people move to assisted living care facilities where the median cost per month is $4,000 a month and a nursing home is over $8,000 a month? Now, you would be forgiven for thinking that this is a bleak situation for many millions of Americans. But what I hope to do in this episode and the next episode is to point to the wizard behind the curtain, causing so much of the distress that we're all experiencing, and then talk about some strategies you can use to escape the wizard's grasp, to click your ruby red slippers and be set free from Oz. That's right, I'm talking about the Federal Reserve. And I want to thank Tom Woods for much of his research he's given to this topic, along with many of the historians and economists I'll be quoting in this and the next episode. So the original job of the Federal Reserve was to smooth out the economy, smoothing out the price inflation on one hand and unemployment on the other hand. Keeping prices low without too much unemployment was their main job. And the sales pitch of the Federal Reserve was that it was to be this sort of Captain Nemo, heroically steering us through a terrible storm and keeping us all safe from what would otherwise be a nightmare scenario of inflation and high unemployment. The Fed was also set up to give the U.S. government some more flexibility, a more flexible currency, as they said. Now, isn't that a nice sounding word? Flexible, right? As opposed to rigid. But what does flexible mean? It means that the currency can be inflated to suit the needs of the government anytime without having to raise taxes on its citizens. So when you hear about government programs being started and you don't also hear about taxes being raised or spending cuts setting up in other programs to set up to pay for that new government program, you can bet that the Fed's inflation is taking place. This is all shadow economics. And you won't hear about this in the financial press. There's no public debate. It just sort of happens in the background. And that's been the way the Fed has worked for over 100 years, up until recently, where they became more and more in the spotlight, especially in the last year now, where we've seen some record inflation begin to skyrocket. And this is, of course, the way the Fed likes it. They like to be in the shadows. Since December of 1913, when the Fed opened its doors, we've seen inflation accumulate 2,550%. Let that sink in for a minute. This means that 
If something would have cost you $100 in 1913, that same thing would cost you $2,550 today. Wow. Or to say it another way, your $30,000 car that you bought last year would have only cost you $1,176 except for the Federal Reserve's insidious effect of inflation. Now, $1,100 for a new car might sound impossible to you, but it's just plain math. That's what inflation does. So since the founding of the Fed, the dollar has lost 97% of its value. Sounds like stable prices has been an absolute failure for the Fed, if that was one of their jobs. Now, in 1913, prices were pretty stable since the founding of the Republic. In fact, there were periods where the dollar would rise in value and prices actually would fall during that period of time. Now, if you want to get more of the backstory on how the Fed was originally created, please go back and listen to episode 56, where I talked to Teresa Kuhn about the creature from Jekyll Island. It's a fascinating origin story that describes the banking cartel that controls the money in our economy today. Now, most of the time when I get into pushing back against this entity called the Federal Reserve, I end up getting a little bit of pushback from people saying that we are now in a better place and why would we ever want to go back to that archaic economy free from the Federal Reserve? Boy, those terrible times. But historians and economists have gone back and really reviewed the historical facts. Christina Romer, who chaired the Council of Economic Advisors under Barack Obama, looked back over the data from the National Bureau of Economic Research, clear back to 1920. And what she found was very surprising. Apparently, the data that we're all using to look at historical recessions before the Federal Reserve was created had been greatly exaggerated. And it turns out, as so she says, that recessions were in fact not more frequent in the pre-Federal Reserve period than in the post-Fed period that we're living in today. And even if we exclude the Great Depression, let's just assume that the Federal Reserve didn't cause or exacerbate the Great Depression of the 1920s and 30s, the data seems to suggest that recessions before 1913, the, the birthday of the Federal Reserve, were shorter and less severe than after 1913. And if we extend our period from 1796 all the way up to 1915, the economist Joseph Davis actually finds no difference between the length or the duration of recessions as compared to the period before the Federal Reserve was created. So if the Federal Reserve does not protect us from recessions, well, what about price stability? Maybe the Fed has been there to offset the problems of deflation. You know, that terrible world of deflation where you go to the grocery store and things are more affordable than they were last year. Who would want a world like that? We've got this recent research that finds the post-Fed period, in fact, to be more volatile once faulty data is corrected for. So the ups and downs, the inputs and outputs that existed before the creation of the Fed were not attributable to a lack of a central bank. Before the Fed, output volatility, that's the stuff we would all make as a country, the volatility of that stuff being generated was almost entirely created by supply shocks. You know, the kind that tends to affect any agricultural society. That's what the United States was before the Federal Reserve, for the most part. While output volatility after the Fed is, to a much greater extent, the fault of a monetary system. So before the Fed, output volatility might have been problems with the wheat harvest this year. But after the Fed, we became a more industrial society and the problems of volatility and inflation seem to come from the monetary system itself. Richard Timberlake is a well-known economist and a historian of American monetary systems and banking history. He says this monetary history confirms that most of the monetary turbulence 
that banks went through during that period of time and suspensions in the 19th century, the bank panics and suspensions of the 19th century, resulted mostly from excessive issues of legal tender paper money. And they were abated mostly by working through the gold standard at that time. So this is the opposite of what we're told in kind of high school economics and history lessons. So in a nutshell, it's just one more example of the faults of interventionalism being blamed on the free market. So for example, the bank panic of 1819, which almost nobody remembers, was the result of years of artificial credit creation by banks, including the newly chartered Second Bank of the United States, which was established just a few years previous. This means that banks were issuing far more paper money than they actually had gold to back in their vaults. So just like today, when the country is flooded with money created out of thin air, speculation just starts to foment and grow and and get out of control. So it looks sort of like a sugar high. People invest in all sorts of crazy stuff. You know, there were not non-fungible tokens or meme stocks or unprofitable IPOs back then, but there was similar wild speculation. So Thomas Jefferson, for example, asked a friend in his Virginia legislature to introduce his plan for reducing the amount of money circulating out there in the system. Oh, so he wrote up a response to the panic of 1819. And Thomas Jefferson's plan was to withdraw all paper money that had been issued in excess of the specie to back it. Specie meaning the precious metal money, because the idea is that paper money is supposed to be a stand-in for the precious metals in that time. It was just more convenient to carry paper in your pocket than a bag full of gold. And then you could take it to the bank and just trade it in for your precious metals at any time. But it becomes hard to do that if they've issued more paper money than they have metal to back it up. Now, what about the Panic of 1873? Many people regard this as the Long Depression, 1873. But even the New York Times recently recounted the history of of this economy, saying there was no 1870s depression except for a very brief recession in 1873. In fact, this decade of the 1870s may be the fastest sustained growth in American history. In fact, it's often referred to as the Gilded Age. Employment grew stronger than the rate of immigration. Incredible technological advances and the standard of living grew more in that decade than even in our recent times today. Think about what life was like for someone born in the 1860s versus someone born in the 1890s. Technological advances like the telephone invented in 1876, the phonograph in 1878, the incandescent light bulb in 1879, the automobile in 1886, even the Kodak camera was created in 1888. Top it all off with the airplane in 1903, and you have an incredible world-changing economy right before your eyes, all without the Fed managing any of it since it wasn't even created yet. Prices fell dramatically during these times, and real output grew across the board on a per capita basis. People were better housed, better clothed, and lived on bigger farms. Department stores were even popping up in small and medium-sized cities. America was transforming from an agricultural backwater country into a mass consumer society. So why did the previous historians get this period of time so wrong? Many economists were fooled by the statistic that prices were falling during this period by an average of about 4% a year. Remember, guys, The conventional wisdom is to say that falling prices would cause this apocalypse and that the sun would somehow engulf the earth if we see prices begin to fall. So they conclude that this must have been a terrible time to be an American and refer to this period as the Long Depression. But the truth is the gold standard was restored in 1879 after being abandoned during the Civil War. 
This made the 1880s a period of prosperity and real wages grow by 20% in that decade. So the next argument you hear from historians is that without all the all-knowing wisdom of the central bank, the Federal Reserve, the economy before the Federal Reserve was extremely susceptible to panics. But this too is false. All states in the United States had regulations called unit banking. This was pretty interesting to discover this. Apparently, unit banking limited banks to a single office. So you could not have bank branches of the bank like we have today. You could not have interstate branch banking either. So this means that the bank, the local bank on the corner of your town, would be artificially fragile because of the regulations imposed on it that it could not have bank branches. So this artificial fragility would create instability since all of that bank's loans would be local loans. So if the economic conditions of that little town went terribly badly, let's say like a lost harvest in your particular area due to flooding or something, the bank then would also collapse. So for example, most of the bank panics were either in the spring planting season or the fall harvest season. If you go back and look at the dates of those bank panics, this is when banks are most leveraged and most vulnerable to shifts in the deposits and the confidence of that particular bank. Economists think that the very laws imposed on the banks created an artificial fragility in the United States. So since there were no unit banking laws in Canada, there were no bank panics in Canada during those same periods of time. I think that's an interesting case study, right? Canada had no unit banking laws, and it also did not establish a central bank until 1934. And again, Canada had no banking panics like the United States experienced. So could the United States have avoided bank panics altogether without a Federal Reserve if they had simply removed the artificial constraints on banking and simply allowed banks to create branches and interstate banking, but not necessarily rely on a federal central bank. That's what I think some economists are beginning to suggest. Milton Friedman, who's fond of pointing out that although the Great Depression claimed 9,000 American banks, the number of banks that failed in Canada at that same period of time was zero. Again, they did not have a central bank at that time. So it turns out that American bank panics were in large part the result of government intervention in the first place. So that's the first. The second piece, it's not entirely clear that the Fed was particularly successful in stopping bank panics. Bank panics were a phenomenon that came to an end really only with the advent of deposit insurance in 1934. So there continued to be bank panics all the way up until the FDIC imposed a deposit insurance in 1934. There were only three worldwide banking panics in half a century between 1873 and 1907. And these were small local and lost only 0.1% of GDP during that time. Now, in contrast, there were five banking panics in just nine years during the Great Depression alone, well after the creation of the Federal Reserve. And the world has seen 20 banking crises and panics since 1980, with depositor losses in excess of 10% of GDP. Wow. So contrary to popular belief, the age of central banking that we're living in right now has not, in fact, given us a world with fewer banking crises. Wasn't it the point of the Fed to protect us from these bank panics and crises like we saw in the Great Depression? Was the Fed just not prepared to handle it? Or, or maybe, maybe they were the cause, the cause. Their concern is not just about banking crisis, but they're also concerned about the inflation crisis. The problem of inflation is that it's worse than people think. And the artificial increase in the supply of money delivered by the Fed tends to push prices higher than they otherwise would be. 
And if you're on a fixed income, you already know this. Your purchasing power goes down as the price of milk goes up. But even if you're not a retiree on a fixed income, let's say, like Social Security or a pension, there's still something known as the Cantillion effect. All right. So the Cantillion effect is a change in the relative prices resulting from a change in the money supply. But it's the uneven expansion in the amount of money that really gets us. What this means is a certain group of politically well-connected people are going to get first access to that new money. So if the Fed creates a bunch of new money this week, it will not evenly distribute it to everybody. Instead, the new money first goes to particular points in the economy, and whoever's closest to that spigot will be able to spend that new money before prices have gone up writ large. This will give everybody closest to the Fed a distinct advantage beyond us normal folks. So if you get a million dollars in your bank account this week, and I don't due to money creation, you can push me out of a real estate deal. You can purchase your Lambo while I'm still stuck driving my old clunker. So there are basically politically connected winners and losers. Who gets the new money first? Well, banks do. Businesses that have government contracts do. Investment banks that sell government bonds to the Federal Reserve, they get the money first. It probably should not surprise you that the top five wealthiest counties in the United States are right around Washington, D.C. metro area, according to the United States Census Bureau. The Swiss economist, Peter Bernholtz, says a study of about 30 currencies shows that there's not been a single case of currency freely manipulated by its government or central banks since 1700 that enjoyed price stability for at least 30 years running. But let me say that again. Over a study of 30 different currencies, there's not been a single case of currency freely manipulated by its government or central banks since 1700 that enjoyed a price stability for at least 30 years. So they're just not keeping our prices stable. But it's not just inflation guys. It's also the moral hazard of the government now unconstrained by physical limitations of money printing. They can now spend and erode the dollar without having to face public scrutiny through raising taxes or cutting other spending programs. Because the government can print money for itself through vague phrases like quantitative easing, it can really get around the democratic process and siphon resources from citizens without having to raise taxes or borrow so much that it dries up interest rates for private borrowers. You see, the natural trend of prices in a true market economy is to fall. The natural trend is for prices to fall, not to rise. When I'm competing with you and you're competing with me to bring the very best widget to the market at the lowest price, in a fixed money system where money supply is not unnaturally growing, the prices will come down over time. We'll be competing with each other for our customer's business. But this is not so when you have a Federal Reserve at the helm. Also, the fiat money synthetically and unjustly increased the wealth and economic power of the banking system. Besides banks, normal people and normal businesses earn money by providing some sort of good or service. And then we take the money that we earn from selling that good or service into the market and acquire the goods and services you and I want to eat or spend or live with for ourselves. Banks, on the other hand, create nothing except money. So by banks creating money at the snap of their fingers, it allows the banks as money creator to enter the market and just sort of take things that they want without having supplied any kind of value first. The American economist Frank Fetter says that, quote, the unhampered market economy resembles a grassroots democratic process. One penny, one market vote. From this point of view, the imposition of fractional reserve notes through legal tender that banks make 
creates market votes out of nothing, end quote. Not only is this not fair in terms of the voting power of the money elite, but it's also making it tough for savers to survive. I'm simply stacking paper dollar bills. If I'm simply stacking paper dollar bills, I'll end up losing out due to inflation. And if we were truly tied to a fixed money system, technically we could all just build up some wealth, store it in a shoebox or barrels in our garage, and then spend it for our future. Now, you can always invest money for higher returns, and you can have conservative options like dividend-paying whole life insurance or just holding on to your cash. But the major theme of today's financial world in our hyperinflated money world is that just to maintain your purchasing power of your savings, you have to become a wild speculator. You have to navigate your way through unbelievably complex financial markets just to hope that the stock market doesn't tumble and vaporize your retirement savings. Now, supporters of the Fed fiat money creation system would say that there are beneficial aspects to inflation. And they're going to say things like, hey, if prices were allowed to fall, this would lead to depressed economic conditions. This would lead to problems for businesses. It would lead to problems for debtors. And so we need regular ongoing inflation just to keep us healthy. So generally, what the regime wants us to say is that a controlled moderate inflation is the best thing. And we are going to get into this in our next episode. But for today, I think you'll agree with me that this is not the kind of material that any of us were taught in school. I had a lot of fun exploring and researching this and understanding the history of bank panics. I wonder what was an aha moment for you. Take some time and really dig into this. What was the history of the American banking system before the Federal Reserve was created in 1913? Please realize that just like the 401k, the Federal Reserve was not created on the eighth day of creation. It was a modern invention. And they've tried it several times, and each time it hasn't worked. This is the third central bank this country has tried. But much like the frog boiling in the pot of water, it's going to be better for us to truly feel and understand the situation we find ourselves in as inflation continues to broil and roil, to know that the Federal Reserve is the one raising the heat on us bit by bit, degree by degree, and we've got to find a way to escape that boiling pot by any means necessary. So I believe our strategies that we offer through our podcast and our financial firm are part of that solution. I believe you can find a way out of that boiling pot and you can avoid being scalded by our financial overlords like the Federal Reserve. So guys, this is your chance to take steps to increase your own money supply. Forget about the inflation of the Fed. This is your chance to create your own money supply and become your own banker, to become, in essence, your own source of financing. As we wrap up today's episode, take that with you. Think about ways you could break free from the modern banking system and do some research on the history of the Fed. I think you'll find it just as interesting as I did. Thanks again, everyone, for joining me for this week's episode of Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your Fed, your economy, and your future. This has been another episode of the Not Your Average Financial Podcast. To join a financial revolution and start thinking different about money, go to www.nyafinancialpodcast.com and click Request a Meeting. The topics presented in this podcast are for general information only and not for the purposes of providing legal, accounting, or investment advice. On such matters, please consult a professional who knows your specific situation.